Hey everyone, welcome back to Female Founder World. We have a special mini episode today with the editor-in-chief at Beauty Independent. Her name's Rachel Brown, and she just wrote a story that I think is going to interest everyone. Yes, it's super applicable to beauty entrepreneurs, but if you're building anything in the consumer space and you're feeling a little stressed out about the economic downturn and all this recession talk, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. It's a quick episode. We really get to the point. I hope you love it. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Rachel, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. I really appreciate you asking me. So you recently wrote an article for Beauty Independent where you're the editor-in-chief and you spoke to a bunch of really respected voice across the beauty industry, basically to try and nut out who wins and, and who loses in a downturn. And we're seeing that scary word recession everywhere. Folks in our community are talking about it so much. So I wanted to just speak to you and figure out what came out of that reporting. To kick us off, can you let me know who did who did you speak to for that piece? Like who who's informing the thoughts that you have on this right now? Yeah, so I spoke to different investors, investment bankers, and then some folks that just have a lot of beauty industry experience like Rita Ariagata. She was the chief merchant for Sephora and now she's an advisor to indie brands and also has her own indie brand called Valde. Mm-hmm. Speaking of another person who's gone from beauty industry expert to beauty entrepreneur, I've also spoke to Jermaine Bolds-Leffridge, and she is a retail broker, a long-term retail broker, getting a lot of brands into the mass market for GBL sales, and she's recently started a skincare brand called I Know. So these are people who often have both operating and other experience, um, which could be starting their own beauty brand somebody named Pamela Friedman I talked to too. She also does beauty sales, supporting retailers, and then also is president of a brand called CB Skin Labs, which is in like Credo. I really tried to get a a broad array of different folks commenting on what they think is going on with the different segments of the market going from value, like if you think about your Dollar Generals or something like that, to high-end prestige, like a Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue. Something that I thought was really interesting while I was reading through the story, it was a comment that came from Christina Nunez at True Beauty Ventures. And she pointed to the fact that the blurring of retail distribution channels, so Ulta Beauty at Target, Sephora at Coles, CVS now offering prestige, that that's actually one factor that's going to really shake up how each beauty segment is impacted in the downturn. Because now shoppers can so easily access high and low in beauty and that she thinks that because of that, we're going to see trading up and trading down. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I just think that's a really big X factor. Like, you know, in the last recession, Mm. we didn't see as much blurring in the American market. Now, there are are other markets like in Canada with Shoppers Drug Mart that has long had prestige presence in the drugstore environment. But because like with Ulta, in uh, Target and with Walmart in their Space and K relationship and CVS adding new prestige skincare. It's really unclear what that means. Will the shopper who goes to a department store regularly be like, F this, I don't need to go to a department store. I'm going to get my you know, prescription at my Target, my CVS, and oh, here I can buy some high-end skincare here. So that's really, really unclear as to what that's going to do. So it could potentially, you know, lead to more trading down from especially an entry level prestige customer 
becoming more of a mass shopper now that the mass environments are trading up. So we're really watching that. I mean, Christina's watching that. And that may mean that the high end has to get more high end, has to really, and we're seeing that with like Chanel raising prices, premiumization happening in the prestige sector. They have to even give more to their customers if the traditional prestige is going more into the mass environment. Something that I also pulled up that Christina said is that brands who are kind of priced in the middle of the spectrum, you know, that aren't kind of a steal, they're not a splurge, they're they're most at risk during a downturn. That's kind of speaking to what you touched on just then. What, you know, brands who are kind of placed here, what can they do to, I guess, survive what's about to happen? Well, it's, uh, it's, I mean, <laughs> nobody can predict the future. I, one of the <laughs> things I was thinking about was I was going into this story was traditionally in beauty. Now I've been covering beauty for like almost 20 years. The Mastige segment was people were really skeptical about that. They didn't think because shoppers were price sensitive and in a mass environment that they would trade up slightly. They weren't there to do that. They were there to, you know, shop for value. But in recent years with the influx of, of DTC born brands going into the mass environment with cooler packaging, cooler propositions when it comes to their mission. Um, there was a real influx of mastige brands at higher price, slightly higher price points than the traditional mass brands. Now, we could think that in this recessionary environment, which what Christina is talking about, that those brands will really feel the squeeze as shoppers trade down from them or the high-end market stays relatively afloat. So I feel that my personal opinion is if they have a shopper that's dedicated to them, that is interested in their value propositions, whether it's clean, sustainable, I don't know what else, you know, an activist for women's rights or other things, they have to lean into those. And also just like every other brand, do things that are valuable to their shopper during recession, whether that's, you know, offer incentives at times that are important, lead into their core products, participate in the programs, the promotional programs of retailers, you know, get out there in front of customers, all those things that they, that are important, but also those differentiators that brought them to the market that made them important to target and important to customers. They have to really reemphasize those to stand out. And it's, it's really a big open question. Will Mastige, if Mastige can per- perform during this recession in a point where middle, middle class in this country and globally has really been squeezed out, it'll prove that Mastige is a segment that's here to stay and skeptics who had been in the beauty industry and had long been weary of that segment will be wrong, <laughs> I guess. Skeptics may be like me because mm. I'm always a skeptic of everything until it proves I'm proven otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a safe place to be, I think, especially if you're a journalist. <laughs> right. Another story that I saw on Beauty Independent, which was written by one of your colleagues, Taylor Bryant, talked to beauty brands about what they're doing to recession-proof their business. I think the overarching thing that I, I took away from the story was this real shift towards growing profitably and not being reliant on external funding. Do you think we're going to see more of a shift towards that? They're going to be forced to do that. So, you know, the shift mm-hmm. is there because... We are seeing some slowdown in in VC funding. It will impact brands and consumer packaged goods, even though maybe less than in the tech sector. So they'll be forced to 
do things yeah. in other ways. Now, there's a proliferation of funding mechanisms out there, if I capital, all kinds of e-commerce mechanisms, and brands have increasingly been using those. Now, they have to be careful about that because they can have high fees and they have to use them carefully and strategically to do things like fund marketing. But yeah, brands in our universe are often bootstrapped. Of course, it's long been that BIPOC-owned brands who have been shut out of institutional funding have had to bootstrap because there isn't that avenue for them as much. And, you know, these brands have to really carefully think about when they need an infusion, why they're getting that. Uh, and I think they they are thinking about that. And it just will hopefully make them stronger to not to pull risky funding moves because it won't be available to them. <laughs> so they'll have to think about other yeah. ways. Something that I've been thinking a lot about and, and with the folks that I'm chatting with on the podcast and, and in our community in general, it's just actually a lot of the founders are in our space haven't had access to the funding anyway. So this isn't actually going to be right. this crazy dramatic shift to them focusing on profitability because they've been doing that anyway. Right. Uh, I think it's the guys who raise a lot of money and we're kind of looking to a series A or a series B over the next 12 months that are now thinking, how are we, what are we going to pivot to be able to fund our growth? Yeah, precisely. I mean, the brands I cover, like people are, I always see like on Twitter and stuff, like talk to bootstrapping, bootstrapped brands. And I'm like, yeah, I talk to bootstrap brands every day. Like those are totally the brands. <laughs> like that's most brands. Yeah, that's most <laughs> brands. I mean, not everybody can have, you know, a huge executive from Nick's like, you know, Selena Gomez and Rare Beauty right away or something like that. That's what makes the brands resilient and the ones that are profitable and have strong fundamentals going into the recession, that that means they have better chance of succeeding in the long term. As, as we've seen over many recessions, strong brands in recessions are strong brands overall. Yeah. What else are you hearing founders? What, what are they doing to prepare for this? Well, I think one of the great things and like what you do is that brands are more collaborative today. You know, I'm, I just mm. ordered something from a brand called Prima, and because my, my husband's having trouble sleeping after COVID. And I, so I ordered some CBD like sleep supplement from the Prima. And I got a sample from Susto, which I'm going to pronounce wrong, but, and that exposed me to the hair powder that they do. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. But it was an example, like I wouldn't have seen that five years ago. I don't think it was an example of brands working together to use their channels mm -hmm. to market each other. So I definitely think it's great that we're seeing more collaboration and brands can work together to learn from each other, but also use their audiences together in ways that are mutually advantageous. I'm trying to really focus on our audience and see what they want from us. Not, not that I'm the mm -hmm. best at that, you know, cause I'm just focused on every little thing every all the time, but just to really think about what our audience wants Think about what's discretionary for your audience and what they will really drop off of. Like if you have a tertiary product, like should you continue with that product? Should you lean more into to other products? Is there anything about that particular product that really is selling that product that you should communicate more? It's mm. not rocket science at all, but I think the brands that really are tuned into loyalty the consumers that stick with them, those are the, those are the brands that are going to fight it out. 
we actually have a sample swap collaboration concierge service where we match mm-hmm. up brands we work mm-hmm. with sister all the time and they can come they can apply through the link and buy on our instagram and we'll help you find someone to do a sample swap gift so what purchase, do you find, um, find like from that. that like do you like what are the results from that yeah so actually like kaylee the founder of sister is is the person who put us onto it because she's seen a huge increase in mm-hmm. both conversions from having a gift with purchase on her site so when that when that pops up as an option on, on checkout that is improving her conversions and also you know that's a great like top of funnel email acquisition source as well so it's definitely working and we're seeing so many more brands replicating that tactic and also discount code swaps you know leveraging each other's email audiences to be able to do new customer discount code swaps and these really scrappy tactics that are kind of getting everyone through this time and helping them acquire customers when frankly just digital advertising is not an option for so many brands at the moment yeah I mean I just think that's I feel that there'll be more ways that brands can do that whether it's in person live events can they share costs Mm. there seems like there is a lot of ways that brands can work together if they aren't so walled off from each other, you know, to really help each other out. I mean, I'm thinking about ways that we can do this. And even as you probably know, it's not as if media like like to talk to each other. So I don't know how much we can do it. But even like (laughs) if there is groups out there that have a lot of beauty entrepreneurs, like, can we work with them to get in front of people? Um, You -hmm. know, things like that. I feel like there's not a lot of downside to these things. I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen if you're working with somebody else, if you're collaborating with somebody else on something? Not much, right? You yeah. guys you piss each other off a little bit and you move on if it doesn't work out or something like that. But I think for the most totally. part, people can get more inventive about ways to support each other. It's a win-win for everybody. Yeah, it's a low stakes thing that you can test as well. You don't have to dive in with a whole lot of inventory and sampling. You can you can really t- test the waters with partnerships with very simple social media partnerships to begin with. And I, while I have you, Rachel, this is changing gears a little bit, but I want to talk to you about the Glossier Sephora partnership because we just had okay. that news yesterday. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you're all over it. And I'm really curious about what you think that's signaling for D2C beauty, D2C in general, and how you think that plays into this kind of downturn and this economic shift that we we're seeing as well. Business of Fashion had a headline like the golden age of DTC is over. And I'm a little skeptical of that because I don't know if there ever was a golden age. If you look back at all the DTC brands, not only Glossier, but very few of them have lived up to the promise. Or there are some brands that seem to be doing really well in DTC and will continue to do well in DTC even if they diversify. So I just, I don't think anything ever is very cut and dry. Like some brands succeed, some brands don't. And DTC is one channel distribution. And I think Glossier has problems regardless of its distribution channel. I don't think it's only the distribution channel. That's the problem. A lot of people in this industry will say to me, oh, Glossier, it'll do fine. It's not struggling. It, it is struggling because I think it's lost some of its buzziness and that. Is, mm, it's lost some cachet. Yeah, exactly. It's lost some cachet. And that's going to be a problem. I, I do think it'll be interesting to see how it does in Sephora. And Sephora will be very helpful for it because there's a lot of, not that there's not a lot of smart people at Classier, there are, but there's a lot of smart people at, at Sephora about selling in a retail environment. Like if you just look at, I mean, House Labs, right? Lady Gaga's brand, it did the same thing. It was digital. It went to Amazon first. 
And then now Mm -hmm. it's going into Sephora and the brand looks a lot better. And why? I think it's because Sephora has gotten in there. I have no firsthand knowledge of this, by the way, but I think Sephora's gotten in there and (laughs) judged up the products and it looks a lot better now because they have a better sense of the beauty consumer today. Now, will Glossier do well in Sephora? I don't know because it's, it's still, it's like, is it relevant today? I don't know the answer to that question anymore. Mm. It's relevant for some people, but is it relevant for enough people? I, I don't know. Also, there's some indication that's not going with that much product in terms of its overall range. So will it really make a statement in the stores? There's so many issues around whether it will do well. But I think that for the most part, a diversified distribution strategy, as much as you can do that because you're relying on retailers as gatekeepers, is as well as like a diversified global footprint, a diversified Mm -hmm. product portfolio, a diversified investment portfolio, all those things. It's always helpful to be diversified. Now, that doesn't mean that some DTC brands aren't going to win. I just talked the other day to the vitamin brand Ritual, which has built up a very, very big business in DTC. Now, it's also going omnichannel. It's going to go into a major retailer, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's the right path. But DTC brands started out in DTC because the costs of distribution were lower and the costs of retail were really high. Retail is expensive. A lot of these brands going into retail now, whether you call them DTC or you don't, if they're small brands, several years from now, we'll see a big fallout from it. A few years before George Floyd, Target wanted to diversify its cosmetics mix. And it brought in a lot of brands that it thought had products for a diverse range of customers. Makeup Geek was one of them. And Makeup Geek is now out of business. I don't think a single Mm. brand that they brought in has survived at Target from that time. Now, Now there's more of an effort and brands are given slightly more support or some brands are given more support to go into these mass retailers because they want to make the smaller brand work. But it is not an easy thing to do. When you do it well, it can be very lucrative. But there are a lot of barriers for especially smaller brands with less funding. How do you, know, we've, we look at Target with their accelerated programs and they're trying to incubate newer brands and Sephora has a similar program. How do you think those brands stand up on shelves? And, and is it this, I guess, is it the silver bullet that I think a lot of founders think it is to be able to get into one of those programs? I'm just going to defer to the brands on this. A lot of the brands that I've talked to that have been in the programs, you know, really benefited from them. They learned a lot. They made connections. So I do think, though, that brands should weigh what their resources that they devote to being in these programs, what that means. They're spending time at the program Mm. away from doing other things. You know, as a skeptic that I always am, I am also like, I feel that we are, you know, just just another burden often for BIPOC founders, that they're going to have to go through these programs. (laughs) They already have really squeeze for resources. And now we're like, okay, so if you want to be a BIPOC brand in Sephora, you got to do this program. Oh no, your white counterparts don't have to do this program, but Mm. you do, because this is the way that you're going to get in. I mean, I might be alone in that opinion. So I don't know, but once again, defer to the brand founders. They've made a lot of good connections through these programs. 
A lot of them get money through the programs as well. And there are some support, sometimes behind the scenes support that they can give them with access to funding. So that's really advantageous. And it gives sometimes the retailers buy-in with these particular brands. Now, at the beginning of Sephora, they didn't uh, take the brands that were going into Sephora Accelerate. So now I think the program is much better because basically a lot of the brands at that time or people would complain that, okay, so they're having all these brands and they're not even taking them. They're basically just like trolling them for information about the market uh, yeah. <laughs> trying to learn from the brands. And then they say, I'm Sephora, but I, I can do this better than you. Let me try it. So there's that element of it as well. But now, especially Sephora, they're taking the brands that are in Accelerate that that's a little bit off the table. But Target doesn't necessarily take the brands. Like Credo doesn't necessarily take the brands. I don't think Sally Beauty takes the brands. And all these have um, Accelerator programs. Interesting. Rachel, thank you so much for talking us through both your story and also I've just taken you on this deviated path where I wanted to know your thoughts on everything that's happening in beauty because you're such an expert. Thank you. For- <laughs> well, I really appreciate it and I'm such a fan of everything you're doing. 